following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. It's good to have you all here. Um, keep eating and relaxing and enjoying. Got... Uh, Basically, work for us to do on the back of the sheets that are handed out there, what we're going to be doing today is uh, actually practicing um, being able to tell the story, how it's framed in a way that we can pass on. Anybody familiar with 2 Timothy 2.2? This is Paul's instruction to Timothy. And it's part of what we came up with last week in terms of um, what the benefit of this is to us. What's the basic idea? Yeah, it's reproducibility. And it's the idea of um, that not only do you take stuff in and you process it for your own life, but as you process it for your own life, you understand why and how you're using uh, your knowledge to understand the world around you. And you can understand it well enough to train someone else how to do it. And that's often a whole different level. You'll see that in coaching, for example, that there's people that are just great athletes, but they become terrible coaches. Um, No offense to Michael Jordan, but I think he would be one of the great examples of that. He's like, you know, you you got a fever 104, just get the ball and fade away, jump shot. What's the big deal? And um, he knows how to do it, but does he know the ability of how to pass it on to others? And so part of the thing that we want to be able to do is – Understand the overall biblical story to understand our experiences and understand it in a way that we can pass it on. I'm going to take us now to the end of Luke. And um, in chapter 24, this is the hinge that goes from telling the story of Jesus to telling the story of the disciples of Jesus. So Luke and Acts goes together. And what you have at the end of uh, Luke is... The disciples are gathered, and Jesus has been crucified, and they can't figure it out. And as they're struggling with it, they hear a story from the women that uh, the body is gone, and then you hear the race and trying to figure out what's been happening there. And as all this buzz is going on, that's where the story of the road to Emmaus is happening. And this is if we pick up um, in verse 13 of chapter 24. Now, that same day, two of them... uh, disciples of Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and they discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and he walked with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast, and one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem and you don't know the things that have happened in these days? How could you even ask us what we're trying to make sense out of? Everybody's asking the same question. And as people were filtering in this morning, one of the things is, how can you even ask what's happening? Are you not paying attention to the oil and stock market and the knock-on implications? Isn't everybody thinking about that and processing that? And whatever it is that a particular community is in, this question of, What's going on? What does it mean? And how do I respond wisely is part of what we're talking about when we talk about this tool is being able to understand things. In this place, it's actually um, the death of Christ. 
And so Jesus prompts them with, in verse 19, and he says, what things? They said, about Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers hated him or handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, had hoped, that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women, they amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb, and they found it just like the women said, but they didn't see him. So what they're doing here is they're saying, here's our problem. We have this understanding that history is actually moving somewhere important right now, and we're a part of it. And we build this sense of anticipation of what we should experience in our lives. And then suddenly, everything goes differently than expected, which seems to be the exact opposite of what we expected. But then we have this anomaly occurs. And we can't figure out what do we do with this new information and how to make sense of it. And they're just... What was their countenance? They're just downcast. They're essentially depressed because they can't figure it out. And Jesus, like we like to think of him on our posters and stuff, of course, reaches out and hugs them and tells them it's okay, right? Somebody in verse 25, what does he say? (laughs) Why are you so foolish and so slow to learn? How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and, and the, all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He basically gave them Old Testament review. When it says Moses, he means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the Torah. And then the prophets are the ones who explain the Torah and say, here's the story. And essentially what he's saying to him is, how can you call yourself... Um, to go back to the earlier example, a basketball fan and not know the illustration about Michael Jordan. How can you say that you're a follower of Christ and a prophet and priest and all these things going on and you totally missed the point? You don't really understand the story. You've kind of missed it. And his rebuke to them is startling um, because we know that he loves us, he cares about us, and he's compassionate towards us. But we also find in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. And that one of the ways that we show love is to actually say, you can do better than that. That's essentially what Jesus did when he caught the woman. The woman was caught in adultery and they're going to have the stoning. First, he gets the bullies and gets rid of them. And then he turns to her and in mercy, he essentially calls her up to say, you're better than this. Go and sin no more. And so the point of his challenge is not to shame them or ridicule them. It's actually a sign of respect to say, you have the capacity to get this. And because it's within your reach to get the essential story, why haven't you? And what's the implication in regard to the situation they're in? What if they did understand the story? How would things be different? If they understood the story, they would actually have the wisdom to process the experiences they're going through such that they could react with stability and with wisdom. And that's what we want for ourselves. Whether it's the stock market relationships, diagnosis of something terrible, opportunities that come up, this sense of wisdom and direction in life that comes from knowing the overall story. 
Now, knowing the overall story is a tricky thing. Um, I'm going to ask two different story questions here. Let's see if the audio works for us. How many of you all are familiar with the Lord of the Rings, the book, movies? All right, how many of you are, like, totally into it? Like, this is, like, great literature, great story. It's awesome. How many of you all honestly think this is the weirdest thing ever for grown men to actually like stories about elves and hobbits and whatnot? I, mean, I need a few of you. All right. We'll see if this, this works for us here then. Um, here is what often happens when we try to tell what's so great about a story we love. Loyalty is an essential element of friendship. Hobbits are remarkable creatures. One must bravely receive the task that fate brings. Frodo is the ring bearer. Aragorn is the true king. True friends never forsake each other. Elves are good. Rangers are good. Sauron is bad. Black riders are bad. There's a powerful enemy determined to destroy all that is good. Evil must be opposed. Even the best of men can fall to the temptation of power. Sometimes you must walk alone unless you're a Liverpool supporter. All right. Now, for those of you who love the story, what were the emotions that hit you as you hear that? presentation of different true statements. All the statements are true. Eric. Did you swing from being moved to cringing with embarrassment and like a nervous laughter? Do you ever have that happen when someone's trying to share the gospel in a non-religious context? And you swing from, amen, brother, that's right, to, <laughs> well, yeah, that does sound kind of strange. And often that's our struggle, is if you try to tell the story, but you tell the story without context, what happens when you have these random truths that are there, people grab the truth and they have to create their own story around it, and it often becomes very, very awkward. And one of the things that I found when we worked in Asia with an unreached people group, with a Buddhist animistic background, We'd tell them about Jesus, and they'd plug it into their own context. And so they saw the life of Jesus in a Jesus film from a near language that we had them watching. They loved him. They're like, man, this guy's incredible. He's got his stuff together. He knows who he is. He's able to heal people. He stands up to religious bullies. He's able to give comfort and direction and these miracles. It's amazing. Then they see him arrested, humiliated, uh, tortured, and ultimately killed. And they start looking awkward. Now, you don't have to know a ton about Buddhism, but in Buddhism, where does suffering come from? We talk about this when we see um, somebody cut you off in traffic, and then next thing you know, they're getting pulled over for speeding, and you're like, yeah, and suddenly you're Buddhist. And what do you say? Karma. And basically, they're saying that for Jesus to be that good in this life and then to have that much bad happen to him, what must he have been in the life before? Super evil. 
for that kind of evil to be catching up with him with that intensity. And then when they see the resurrection, they freaked out. And they said, get this out of our, our village. Take the disc that it's on and get it out of here. And they were afraid that he was an evil being who had incredible power and pretended to be good. But now that all this evil had come upon him and he was humiliated and dead, he then was going to rise up from the dead and be what's called a pipa, this like vampire um, monster that was going to come get him. And so we try to tell the story, and it's a good and wonderful story, but if we don't tell it coherently, the very thing that ought to be good, one sounds weird, and worse, it can sound as if it's the opposite of what it really is. And so what we want to be able to do is we want to be able to tell the story well, First to ourselves, so that we can process our own questions and challenges about if God's so good and I'm working so hard, why isn't everything falling in place for me like it should? You know, if she really loves me, why does she express it this way and why do we have so many problems? Um, These types of challenges and questions we all carry with us and we tend to go to the best story we have to explain them And frankly, for a lot of us, we're Luke 24, um, foolish and slow of heart to believe. We are not well equipped to process difficult experiences we have in life to know what do they really mean and what should I do in response. And one of the things we want to do is try and fix that. So on your handout, you've got on the front um, basically sort of a walkthrough of what each of the different symbols mean on the crown heart world. And because not everybody was here last week, I'm going to give a one-minute overview of what Crown Heart World really is and what it should be able to do for us. Life is a puzzle. We experience good and bad all the time. The challenge is to find meaning and hope. A way that can help is a story with five basic parts. Here it is in a simple sketch called Crown Heart World. A crown represents God as our creator. The heart and world show that he made us and the world in which we live. That's why we experience good and why we love meaning. But the story also tells how humanity and the world got turned upside down and lost access to the creator. The good news is that the creator came into the world to show goodness in the life of a man, to correct what is wrong through his death, and to show that good overcomes bad by raising him to new life. Now we know more about our Creator than before. Even though life is still hard, we trust in the one God provided and experience real change. The hope is that one day everything will be new and good and restored to what is best. This site will explain more about this story and how it reveals meaning to our lives. All right, well, that's our overview, and that's where we're headed. How many of y'all could draw it right now? Anybody? Scott. (laughs) Tell you what, um, try to draw it if you could, depending on how your personality is, and you don't want to be too uh, messy on your sheet or whatever. But if you want, just kind of hide and see how much you can scribble out from memory. And one of the things you'll find is uh, often when we hear things, uh, we're like, got it, got it, makes sense. But when we have to reproduce it, it's different. That's why a lot of us have uh, 
couple years worth of foreign language in uh, school and uh, can't order breakfast tacos. Um, so let's try and practice it for a second. If you were to draw this out as the whole biblical story using the little graph. When, uh, when I first showed this to someone who did graphic design, I may have mentioned this to you. They saw it, and they're like, oh, no, no, you've got to clean that up. That's too messy. <laughs> and they thought it was like a logo or something. And began to explain to them what's in it. And they suddenly realized that this little image here, uh, seriously, you could teach over a year's worth of theology um, from this one diagram. And that there's a lot of meaning in each of the symbols and their arrangement and how they interact with one another. And what we want to do is we want to go from simple to deep. And so the simple aspects, we want to stay uh, almost hyper simple. And so part of what you're going to see is we're going to list the biblical story in five um, acts, five different categories And then underneath, we're going to arrange three basic symbols in a way that gets the significance of that in front of us. And again, one of the things here is this isn't just Bible trivia. The point is, using the Bible the way that we see here in Luke 24 to meaningfully process your own understanding of life and your decisions in response to life. It's a dashboard. It's a compass. It's a a tool for us to actively use, not to, to win trivia contests. So... As we mentioned there, the first two things that we're looking for is we want to help process our own life experiences, uh, find direction and hope, and we want to pass it on to our own disciples, including our kids. Um, How are we going to do that? We're going to learn the ideas and draw them with symbols. So remember the biblical story told in five parts, creation, separation, redemption, transformation, completion. That's on the front here. I'll go back to uh, show the handout up here. So there in the... The outline that you've got. We're now up here looking at how we're going to draw this. In, in your booklet, you'll see creation, rebellion, redemption, transformation, completion. I changed it partly just so that it sounds the same. In part, there's other reasons as well. And that's one of the things that I'm working through is, is how to teach it. Now, the first column talks about creation. But this isn't one of those debates about intelligent design, um, you know, young earth creationism, um, how you end up doing geology as uh, with an oil company and fit that in with your biblical understanding of 6,000 years, 10,000 years, 4.5 billion. Um, the actual telling of the story really isn't linked to chronology very significantly. Essentially, its main point is to say that there actually is a purpose and order to life There's a sense of how things ought to be. There's a reason that we encounter goodness. Those are the primary things. Those other things are interesting, and obviously we want to try and understand them, 
But as the story is told in the Torah from Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy, that's not a relevant question, the, the question of when and how that all happened. It's the question of, is there any goodness at all? And so when we tell the story of creation, the focus is on oughtness and how things ought to be and the good that we encounter. The separation that we see in column two, or the fall, is where we begin to experience how the world that ought to be, that's just not the way things are. And when we've heard it told to us, the world's not fair. When we were kids, we still had the audacity to ask, well, why not? Like, wouldn't it be better if it was fair? (laughs) And so part of our struggle is as we look at column one and two, is the creation of the world as it ought to be and the reality of the world that we actually live in, how are we going to deal with that? And what often happens as we grow up, we often have that sense of the goodness of the world when we're quite young. And then as we go through adolescence, we realize that the world is a lot darker and more complicated than we thought. That's why some of us have pictures of us wearing really obnoxious uh, concert T-shirts that emphasize death and darkness and, and drama. And that's often what you'll see in adolescence is this articulation of I've become aware that the nice, good, simple world that I was told about, that's just not the way it is. And the challenge as we've become men, as we've become adults, is integrating do we stay cynical and bitter and self-destructive or is there actually a legitimate reason to identify with and invest in goodness? And is it just a pragmatic thing? Like if you go to church, um, then women and their fathers won't find you as threatening and you might actually be able to find somebody and so you need to kind of look reasonably religious so that you're not as threatening and it's just a practical ploy to make things work. You get good business contacts at church too. And honestly, some people, it never gets beyond that. It's like, I don't believe, but if that's the price I got to pay to fit into the community and have access, whatever, and I'll do it. But all of us continually go through the struggle. I just, um, we were talking about this walking in last night. I watched The Revenant with my son. Uh, my son's graduated from college, if you're worried about you know, <laughs> taking my eight-year-old or something to go watch <laughs> this brutal survival story. And no spoilers, obviously. Um, but it's the question about when we struggle to survive and what we care about, what really makes it worth it? And how worth it is it to keep fighting? When we get tired and we get frustrated and what is it that drives us to make these hard decisions? So as we do column one and two, we're aware of good and bad. But column three is where we find a sense of meaning with our response to good and bad. Uh, And our faith is that good actually overcomes bad and that it's not a childish naivete that we don't realize uh, that the world is a dangerous and twisted place. It's that we realize that good really is worth committing to as identity and as our um, priority. As that begins to unfold, then, we move forward into transformation. Because I identify with goodness, I'm still aware that I have embedded commitments to both good and bad. I still actually enjoy bad things. And if it's too awkward to talk too specifically, let me just confess... I enjoy processed food, okay? That just keeps it from being too weird, okay? 
And when I do, sometimes I feel guilty. Sometimes I don't even feel guilty. I couldn't defend it to anybody. You know, I know the science that people get good chemistry degrees and then get hired by a food company to figure out how to get things that actually do nothing good for you to taste as if they're good for you so that you just cram them in your face and you eat them and all sorts of other indulgences in life. I sometimes really like to be angry and I find it very, very convenient. I've had times when I've struggled in communication with my wife um, that I've been, and this was easier when it was overseas because you're out and amongst people and you bump into people, hoping that I would encounter somebody who's being a bully to someone else or towards me so that I could have a righteous outlet to my sense of frustration and anger. And then struggling with dark thoughts of things that I shouldn't like them, but I do. And I've got to sort out what's going on in there And so this good and this bad that's not just in the world, this good and this bad is still wrestling within me. And so this transformation is how do I realistically go through processes of growth to where I don't try to fake it till I make it good. I actually want to enjoy healthy food instead of processed food. I want to enjoy healthy emotions instead of toxic emotions. I want to have healthy interactions with other people not unhealthy ones. And then finally, what's the end game? Where's this all headed? Um, the end game, the completion. I just got through reading Tim Keller's The Prodigal God. And he does a beautiful, beautiful job of making the point, and this sounds radical, but it's not even remotely radical. The goal is not heaven. Goal has never been heaven. The goal is the same as the original creation, heaven and earth connected. The separation of heaven from earth is called Platonism. It's also what you'll find in Buddhism, the realization that the physical cannot be redeemed, and so you have to escape and get away from the physical in order to have good, which means if that's your fundamental belief, you will always feel conflicted about enjoying good things in a good world. It's also not the biblical story. And David Self did a great job of preaching uh, the conclusion to Isaiah, ends up having the promise which shows up in Revelation, which is heaven and earth have been reconciled. And that there's this promise that we can now live in a physical world without compromise. And so the intermediate state that we typically focus on is true. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we go to funerals and someone's spirit is no longer here. They're in heaven. That's a true thing. But that's an intermediate until we get to the end game, which is the resurrection of the body. Which is then that people who have gone on will become physical again and will eat and will enjoy fellowship with others in a life where the world works the way it's supposed to be. That's the biblical promise. That's the whole reason Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Paul makes the argument extensive in 1 Corinthians 15 that if it wasn't for the physical body being what's restored. What this means for us is that everything we do can count in terms of being spiritually healthy and appropriate, including enjoying a football game and snacks with your friends. And you don't have to have a halftime evangelism episode to justify enjoying a football game and snacks with your friends. It's column one, God, you created goodness, and we have the opportunity to enjoy enjoy a game, which is just an arbitrary set of challenges so that 
people can compete against each other without actually destroying each other. And I can enjoy just having rest to enjoy a game, enjoy time with friends, and just to relax and say, God, thank you for this goodness that I'm able to participate in. So when we talk about this sense of processing life, it's a very practical, common sense awareness that in God we live and move and have our being. And the deeper we go in Scripture, it doesn't take us into weirder and weirder realms of uncertainty. It actually makes us more concrete, more alive, more practical, and more present. That's our win. All right? All right. Well, here is what we're going to try and do. On the back, um, and you can just reconstruct this, or I've got it online, so you can um, print out another copy. You've got your chart. Try to fill in. What you'll see is these are the experiences. Good, bad, faith, love, hope. The transformation that we have is that we get better at giving and receiving appropriate love in terms of how we interact with the physical world, how we interact with other people, how we interact with God. And then ultimately our hope is that heaven and earth will be reconciled and we will be with those who've gone ahead of us. So good and bad. Faith, hope, and love uh, end up being the overall biblical story. What are the components above those? Go ahead and fill those out and take a, a minute to practice it or discuss it and see if there's any questions. So the numbers on the back to see if you can. And what you're trying to do is say the five parts of the biblical story. Those are the things that are going to end in the T-I-O-N, like redemption. And then I've given for you underneath um, what they help us process. And as you're doing it, if there are any questions about why those five or suggestions, observations, or anything like that, the goal is for us to process through practice process back and forth. Yeah. Right now, you don't have to fill in the symbols yet, just the categories at the top. And you can, yeah, I mean, you can do whatever, but we're just, do those categories make sense? One of the mistakes I've made before is I've started with the symbols, and it's almost like starting with that, um, you should read Lord of the Rings or watch the movie and then doing that little intro video. And it's so jade you to it that you're just kind of defensive and freaked out. 
And if you start with the symbols, it can just make people think, well, this is weird. But if you understand the ideas, and you're like, I like the ideas, but how do I remember, remember the ideas, then the usefulness of the boxes and the little pictures makes sense. Uh, if you got other ways, if you, don't, if you don't learn through visual stuff, forget the, the diagram. It's the teaching, the concepts that are behind it. I find the diagram really useful for me. I'm one of those, when I take notes, I'm always doodling. And so it looks like I'm not paying attention, but I just you know, need to be fidgeting and need to be kind of scribbling is how I process. Any questions or observations about understanding the biblical story of God made a good creation, that's why we experience good. We've separated from God, that's why the good that ought to be is off. Things don't quite work the way they're supposed to. I don't understand God as much as I'd like to. The world, nature itself, doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And our hearts, something's off. It's just too easy to do the wrong thing. And then redemption, transformation, and then completion. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. But any questions that come up? The first uh, set of images then, here's the significance that we want to get. Under creation for good, this sort of lays the foundation for everything else that goes forward. Um, when I experience beauty and goodness, I'm aware of oughtness created to be enjoyed. And so what we have there is in that first column, we're going to do the crown, the heart, and the world. Now, the crown obviously represents God. And the concept is that God is king overall. We talked about this briefly last week, that the heart is humanity made in God's image. First John 4, 8 says that God is love. It's also the commandment we get from Jesus where he interprets the entire Old Testament as love God, love people. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19. And the thing is, we're not good at loving God and we're not good at loving other people appropriately. Everybody's religious, even uh, anti-religious people end up being religious. It's the idea of finding something ultimate that we express devotion to. But we often express that devotion to the wrong source or in the wrong way. And same thing in terms of being made in the image of love. We love, but often we love poorly, like the example of loving processed food, right? I'm going to get healthy one day, and I'm not going to have any illustrations except, you know, more disturbing stuff. So maybe that's a rationalization. I could just stick to, yeah, I don't know. Um, and then the circle, the world includes all else that God created. God made goodness. And when that's all else, that includes stuff, if you watch the movie Interstellar, <laughs> if you watch uh, things about the universe and, and galaxies beyond galaxies beyond galaxies, the full range of God's creation at the bottom of the ocean and to the extent of uh, space and beyond, that the entire cosmos. And likewise, this includes spiritual beings that we don't fully understand that we have different names and categories in Scripture that are often um, quite strange. And we'll talk about angels and demons, but there's actually a, a, ta a taxonomy that's um, hints of things that are quite elaborate and complex. And essentially, it's just telling you there's a whole lot out there. Just like dogs have a range of hearing and, and different uh, animals have a range of seeing that goes beyond what we have, there's a whole range of spiritual awareness that's active and real that we don't fully get a grasp on. So that's our first column, crown heart world. 
Um, the takeaway is that goodness is from God. And what I do for this for myself visually is I learn this concept and I doodle this out. Again, when I experience good, and by good, I don't just mean religious good in the sense of uh, elaborate, you know, theological things. I mean, um, for me, it's soccer more than American football um, because for God so loved the world. And so if you're going to love the world, you find the sport that the world loves, and there's a theological rationale. <laughs> yeah, but diving in soccer, I need an explanation for, right? You know, when the guys, like, aren't even hit, and they fall down screaming, holding their face and whatnot, and, you know, have no dignity whatsoever? All right, well, that's what column two is about. And the idea is the ought where we honor God and we give and receive love with him. And that's the story in Genesis 1 and 2. They were created to have meaningful fellowship with the one who created us, meaningful fellowship with one another, and constructive relationship to nature. That we actually bring about the flourishing of nature. And our exercise of dominion is a good thing for us and for nature. They're not against each other. But then Genesis 3 tells the story of disorder, how the, um, the sense of loyalty to God gets replaced with rebellion. And as a result, it's like a canoe flipping upside down. And if you're suddenly, someone thinks it's funny to uh, knock you out of your canoe or your inner tube or whatever, and you don't expect it, and you're breathing in water, you're dangerous, right? You're clawing, freaking out, trying to get back to air. This is why we're dangerous to ourselves. We're not freaking out trying to get back to air. We do not give and receive love adequately, and we're dying for love. And this separation then, and that's even if you've got a good family, this anxiety towards our fathers, do they love us? Do they respect us? Uh, are they embarrassed by us? Do they put up with us? Do they even know our name? And this craving starts at an early age, and then... The whole idea of friends and romance and everything else, everything is upside down. And it's like the panic that goes on when you're underwater trying to get air. We all have experiences of panic, trying to get respect, trying to get love, camaraderie, affection. And we do it badly because we were just panicked. And the world rules over us, and it's now a broken world. It doesn't work the way it did before. And as a result, then our view of God is eclipsed. It's not that he's not there, so we can't see him because the presence of an oppressive world is so much on us, I can't look beyond it to see him. You know, Pink Floyd, everything under the sun is in tune, but the sun is eclipsed by the moon. The smaller, unlit thing has the capacity to block out the much larger, bright thing. And so the experience for all of us is likewise, even as Christians, that the oppressive nature of the world, our responsibilities, our cravings for respect, for satisfaction, for camaraderie, for love, makes it to where even when I wish I was thinking about God, uh, I often don't. And when I do, and I try to understand or feel, I don't. What's up with that? And when I talk to other people, and they're not making it up. They're not being difficult. They're like, I just, where's God? This is a concise explanation of the, and you could tell them to read the book of Job, but it's kind of long. 
or read the book of Habakkuk, but it's a little bit foreign to us. Um, or where Jesus talks about the Tower of Siloam falls on 18 people, and uh, were they any worse sinners than anyone else? And there's lots of scripture that brings this out, but in a concise way, this frames for us in these first two columns what is good and bad about life as we experience it now. So go ahead if you want and practice writing those out, the symbols on there, and see if there's any questions about why it's written the way it is or any observations. Just take a couple minutes on that. Yeah, and it gives you a chance to talk with each other as well. Fallen nature. Genesis 3. The, the rebellious part of creation, the serpent, comes and says, God says this, I say that. Which one is true? And we turn from God to the creation. We turn from the creator to the creation, and we allowed creation to have dominion over us. And so part of the problem is when he comes to rescue us from sin, Satan, and death is that now we've been separated from God and that Satan has authority over humanity because we've abrogated our position. This is really important. Yeah, it's a good question, David. This is the idea. In Genesis 3, we signed over the contract without reading all the details at the bottom of it, and they did us over. We turn from the creator to the creation. That's Genesis 3. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 1 as well, that they worship the creation instead of the creator who is blessed forever. As a result, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do all sorts of disgusting stuff with one another. And then it lists that. And then it goes on in Romans 2 and says religious people need to not feel too proud because they find a way to do the same stuff which is essentially the younger brother leaves the father to just go indulge in sensuality. The older brother thinks that his chores gives him entitlement. And both of them have issues, and they're both eventually asked to join at the fellowship table if they will move from their positions of indulgence or self-righteousness to see the father's grace. They can both get to the same table. But that is... uh, how we've all given it over. Any questions or observations about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that we're trying to, but it ends up going towards the world. And I, and what I do is I also often will draw the world pushing arrows back down towards us. So the demonic and nature itself, um, you know, just the lust that rage within us in terms of biology gone crazy, the, that you have this cosmos that's pushing down on us so it's easy to do wrong, and we're trying to get up towards God, but that, that sense of worship gets directed to um, Maxim's 100th this year and our investment portfolio and our respect status in whatever field we're in. And that that pull towards what's ultimate and transcendent gets twisted. And there's in the movie The Revenant, there's a, there's a really 
um, gripping little digression into the question of what do we ultimately worship. And it's just a weird little story. I won't say it now um, because, it, you know, people haven't seen it. Don't do any spoilers. But it's, that's one of the constant things. Everybody worships. Everyone's trying for something ultimate, something transcendent. It's one of the reasons we can get hyper-invested in any of those categories I've said or in a sports team or in something. We're, we're looking for something as an ideal, something that rises above the hassle of everyday life. And so there's this ongoing tension. And left to ourselves, that's the entire world. And this question of ultimate meaning is like, who's got time for that? God and, you know, heaven and hell and righteousness and whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the world that we feel pressured in. And one of the struggles that we'll get as we'll move forward here is we'll see when we get to column four in terms of transformation. And we won't do that today. We'll move forward to the story over the next couple of weeks to take more time is our hearts will be turned upside right. But the world is still oppressing us even after we come to faith in Christ. And by faith, we look back to what Christ has done, and we have a partial view of God. Peter talks about this. You love him, though you've never seen him. 1 Corinthians 13, uh, Paul is telling us that we see through a glass darkly. We have this reflected understanding of God. It's incomplete. We know true things about God, but we don't know all things about God. The Bible tells us true things about ourselves in the world, but it doesn't tell us all things about ourselves in the world. And so the crown and the cloud allows us to be people of conviction without being religious know-it-alls. Which is, again, the theme of Job, is Job is like, God, I'm doing the math, and this just doesn't make sense. And his religious friends are like, well, obviously, it's because you've done something, you deserve this. And Job's like, no. I don't think I've done anything different than I've done before, and I've been pretty faithful. This doesn't make sense. And they keep arguing with him. No, everything has to make sense. And then God shows up and takes him on this tour of creation. He says, can you explain this? Can you explain that? Mountain goats, bottom of the ocean, celestial issues. Uh, no, no, no. So why is it that you want to hold me accountable and I should explain myself to you, Job? You, you know, one of the ways I say is you can't even host Animal Planet, and yet you want to critique God. <laughs> and we do that, and we want to be God's supervisor, or worse, his auditor. And Job repents and says, these are things beyond my pay grade. And God says, Job, I like you. Your friends I've got issues with. They think they're being biblically faithful, but they're actually just annoying, difficult people that have read too many systematic theologies and think they've got an answer for everything. And they haven't actually read the Bible itself to see that whole books are committed to the inability for us to crack the code. And that what we're told in Habakkuk, which is only three chapters, is there's a big political crisis going on. Job, uh, Habakkuk's like, God, I need an answer, and I'm going to stand here on the tower until you give me an answer. And then he gets a history lesson about how God's been faithful in the past. So are you going to trust me or not? And he says, even if the stock market crashes and doesn't bounce back, or the equivalent in his day, was even if there is no fruit on the vine. Even if all of our investments have been totally devastated, 
You make my feet like the deer, and the feet of a deer as opposed to a prophet standing on a parapet looking out at the great vision where he can see everything at once. How does a deer make it up a mountain? One step at a time. You make my feet like the deer is like I wish. What I was asking for is I see the whole big thing, but all I can see is the next step, and you're enough for me when you do that. And that becomes our message. And so we'll go into that in more detail as we go forward. But if you recreate something like this and you practice, these symbols will make it easier to dive into and out of the bigger issues that we want to talk about in our experiences. So invest some time trying to learn it and process your own life experiences and things that you're learning biblically and come with questions about where it works, where it doesn't. The booklets will explain a little bit more. And uh, we'll have that as a cliffhanger until next week. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the garden room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day.